what is a home mission sermon? For Spurgeon, the home mission is the responsibility and privilege of each of God's people to do the work that God has given them to do right where they are, to speak, to work, to pray, to labour, so that God might be glorified on our own doorstep. You may have been into one of the uh, older church buildings somewhere in the UK where there's a sign over the inside of the door as the congregation makes its way out. The mission field starts here. And that's really what Spurgeon has in mind. Although, to tell the truth, probably the mission field starts within the building as much as it does outside of it. The point is that the Church of Jesus Christ is a people who ought to be committed to the glory of God in the earth, to speak and to live out the gospel in such a way as that others should come to know it for themselves. And that's what Spurgeon is preaching in a sermon that he delivered on the 26th of June, 1859, at the Music Hall, Royal Surrey Gardens. It has the title, A Home Mission Sermon, and it's number 259 in the New Park Street pulpit, and it's our featured sermon this week. The week's readings are from Sermon 255 to 261, and then next week, if you're following along, it's 262 and 268. The featured sermon next week is 267, a sermon entitled The Tabernacle of the Most High, uh, a sermon about the, the Church of Jesus Christ as a spiritual building. But this week, a home mission sermon from the text Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. It's interesting, at least to me, that this text was uh, something of a motto text for the great Baptist theologian of a previous century, Andrew Fuller. Andrew Fuller, who died in 1815, uh, was uh, really the theological uh, impetus behind the rejuvenation of the Baptist cause, moving some of his brothers away from hyper-Calvinism toward the kind of free offer ministry which Spurgeon himself embraced. Spurgeon's concern then is with this principle laid down by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. We don't have long to live, says Spurgeon, and so we ought to work while it is day. Why are God's ships still at sea, he asks. One breath of his wind might waft them to the haven. Why are his children still wandering hither and thither through a maze when a solitary word from his lips would bring them into the centre of their hopes in heaven? The answer is, they are here that they may glorify God and that they may bring others to know his love. We are not here in vain, dear brothers. We are here on earth like sowers scattering good seed, like ploughmen ploughing up the fallow ground. We are here as heralds, telling to sinners round what a dear Saviour we have found, and heralding the coming of our Master. 
So Spurgeon is insisting that each one of God's people is put here for a certain purpose, a purpose that will soon come to an end, and whether it be accomplished or unaccomplished, there shall never be a second opportunity for attempting it, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. And with that pressure then, that holy pressure of time upon us, Spurgeon wants to explain the preacher's exhortation and then enforce it by evangelical arguments. What are evangelical arguments? Basically, they're the gospel reasons why you should listen to the preacher's exhortation. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So the preacher's exhortation is going to be divided into three parts. Uh, What shall I do? Whatever your hand finds. How shall I do it? With your might. And why should I do it? For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. And Spurgeon's going to break this sermon down along those two main lines, explaining the exhortation and enforcing it by arguments. The exhortation is being divided into three parts. What shall I do? How shall I do it? Why shall I do it? And each of those is going to be further subdivided. It's a reasonably complex sermon for Spurgeon, uh, but it holds together well. So then, uh, what shall I do? Whatever your hand finds. There are some who are saying, he says, I hope I love Christ, I desire to serve him, for I have been saved by his work upon the cross. What then can I do? And the answer is, whatever your hand finds to do. So that refers, says Spurgeon, first of all, to the works that are near at hand. You're not called to do the works which you can see far away in other parts of the world. Most of you, says Spurgeon, are called especially to do the work which is near at hand. People are always desiring to be doing something miles off. If they could but be somewhere else, what wonders they would accomplish. And we often hear this kind of thing. uh, Oh, if only I were here or if only I were uh, in a different situation. You just wait and see. I I remember a man who, uh, to be honest, accomplished almost nothing Ever, who kept promising us as a church and, and me as a pastor, you know, well, you just wait. You just wait and see what I can do when the circumstances are right. Well, sadly, it didn't look like the circumstances ever came right because he never actually did anything. And he, Spurgeon then talks of people who come to their minister and say, what shall I do for Christ? In nine cases out of ten, he says, that's evidence of a lazy, idle spirit when men ask what they shall do. If they really were in earnest, if they wanted to do something, they would find themselves placed in the midst of such a press of work that the question would not be, what can I do? But which out of all these shall I do first? For there's enough here to fill an angel's hands and occupy more than all a mortal's time. Spurgeon's point is that men who are ambitious for the glory of God Men who have a desire to serve the Lord, they, they tend to be initiative takers. They're, they're self-starters. The problem isn't that they can't figure out what to do. The problem is that there are so many things that might be done. And so he says, serve God in that which your hand finds present, that which is near at hand, we might say. Serve him in your immediate situation where you are now. Could you not distribute tracts? Oh, yes, you say, but I was thinking of doing something else. Yes, but God put you there to do that. What about teaching an infant class in the Sunday school? 
I was thinking of being the superintendent of the Sunday school. Were you indeed? But your hand has not found out how to get there. Do what your hand has found. It has found an infant class to teach. So don't be prowling about for work, says Spurgeon, but do it where it is when your hand finds it. Whatever's right there to be done, do that and do that first. Again, he says, whatever your hand finds to do refers to works that are possible. There are many things which our heart finds to do that we never shall do. It is well it's in our heart and God accepts the will for the deed. But the point is that you need to do what you can do, whatever your hand finds to do. He uses an illustration of a a magazine that called for a hundred missionaries to go to China. And he says the problem was that if you just said, let's find the money for one rather than the money for a hundred, then you've got something to start with. And the trouble is, if you aim that high, you might never do anything because you fall short. Whereas if you start with one, then you can move on to two and then three and then four and then five. And he says the exhortation of our preacher, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, that would come home to such people. Do whatever your hand finds to do. Not the great things, but the first things, the present things, the possible things, the things that are in your hands. And again, he says, don't scheme and speculate what you would do if someone were to leave you £20,000 or how you'd serve if you became prime minister. You have what you have. You are what you are. Do it with what you have got. And then another word of exhortation, whatsoever your hand finds to do. And I was kind of holding back a little bit earlier because uh, this is maybe an extension of what Spurgeon had in mind when he said that, Somebody was quite happy to superintend the Sunday school, less keen on preaching an infant class with all the the spit and the snot and the sick and everything else that goes along with it. And the the children who aren't quite uh, up to speed with perhaps what you would like to be doing. And so Spurgeon says that the duty which lies against your door may be a very disagreeable one. And often that's why people don't do it. You will remark in many Christians, he says, and possibly if you're wise, you'll remark it in yourself, how we all have a preference to do those duties which we regard as being honourable, as coming strictly within the range of our own office, those that which probably will be rewarded with the praise of men. But if we understood the true majesty of humility and how great a thing it is for a Christian to do little things, to bow himself and to stoop, We should rather envy the meanest of the flock than the greatest, and each of us try to wash the saints' feet and perform the most menial service for the master. So, my friends, it's not whether or not we've got a a great and commendable task at hand, one which men will see and applaud. It's whatever your hand finds to do. If God has put something at hand, then you and I ought to take it up. And we should be ashamed of ourselves then and declare from this time forward, whatever it is, be it great or little, if it comes to our hand and if God will but give us help and give us grace, we will do it with all our might. I have thus explained what we are to do. I have to be honest, I would imagine that in 99 out of 100 churches, merely taking those three points to heart would transform the life of the congregation. If everybody did what was near at hand, if everybody did whatever they could do, and if everybody did 
everything that they could do, the Church of Christ would be transformed with regard to its holy output. But Spurgeon's moving on and so must we. How are we to do it? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. First of all, do it, then do it with your might. Do it promptly. Don't fritter away your lives in setting down what you intend to do tomorrow as being a recompense for the idleness of today. No man ever served God by doing things tomorrow. If we have honoured Christ and are blessed, it is by the things which we do today. And so Spurgeon says, crack on, get on with the work. Now is the moment. Now is the opportunity. Do it, do it, do it, he says. This is what the Church of Christ wants to have proclaimed, as with the sound of a trumpet in all her ranks. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Don't put it off one hour. Do it. Do not procrastinate a day. Procrastination is the thief of time. Let him not steal your time. Do it. At once, serve your God now, for now is all the time you can reckon on. And here again, you've got the context of the verse. The grave is coming. Now is the opportunity. If you've got something to do, then do it. And further, do it with your might. Whatever you do for Christ, throw your whole soul into it. Christ wants none to serve him with their fingers. He must have their hands, their arms, their hearts. We must not give Christ a little slurred labour, which is done as a matter of course now and then. But when we do serve him, we must do it with all our heart and soul and strength and might. Now he says, and this tells on us, the worst part of the Christian church at this time is that it seems as if many of our ministers and their churches had lost their hearts. That's as true today, if not more so, than it ever was. Step into your churches and chapels. Everything is orderly and precise. But where is the life? Where is the power? I confess that I would rather address a congregation of ignorant men who are alive and enthusiastic than a congregation of the most learned and orderly who are dead and blank, upon whose ears all the preaching in the world falls as but a dull, monot dull monotony. A dull monotony. No, sorry, a dull monotony. And, and Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's speaking to the hearts of preachers. Give us men and women who are eager to hear and ready to respond rather than those who know it all and aren't interested in doing anything further. I recall preaching at a, a pastor's conference several years ago now and uh, I, I put it to the men that perhaps too many of us had made it our ministerial aim to die more slowly as churches. And that's what Spurgeon's talking about. Men who just are happy to see things drift down, but not too quickly. No, says Spurgeon, we want life. We want heart, heart in the ministry, heart in the deacons, heart in all the offices of the church. And until we have this, we cannot expect the master's blessing. I'd rather have no sermon than a dull sermon, no teaching than sleepy teaching, no prayers than lifeless prayers. A cold religion is tasteless. We want a hot religion that will burn its way into the heart, the religion that will make its way in the world and make itself respected even though some pretend to despise it. But then a note of caution, a little reminder that the might of a Christian is not in himself. His might lies in the Lord of hosts. We need to act in God's strength or it will not be done with true might, but rather feebly and badly done. 
It's the might that God gives us. So whatever we attempt in serving God in the winning of souls, let us first begin with prayer. Let us seek his help. Let us go on with prayer mixed with faith. And when we've concluded the work, let us commend it again to God with renewed faith and fresh prayer. What we do thus will be well done and will not fail in its effect. And now the third part of that opening exhortation. Why? Why do we do whatever we can find to do with our might? Because death is near. And here again is that context. If we all lived in the light of our funerals, how well should we live? I mean, soften it a little. I can't remember who it was who first suggested to me that in the week before a man or a woman at work goes on holiday, their productivity goes up by something like 150%. We, we get things done when we know there is an end at hand. We crack on and we accomplish things that otherwise might be left undone. How much more then if we all lived in the light of our funerals, if we were conscious that this time we have in this world is short? Christian men, like other men, says Spurgeon, forget that they are mortal, and even when we who profess to see into the future, and declaring that we are looking for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, even we seem to think that we shall live here forever and ever. So live while you live. You have no two lives accorded you on earth. Now is the time to serve. Work while you live. Work while you can. Work while it is day. Live while you work. And now Spurgeon, having pressed that exhortation upon us, wants to stir up all the professors of religion, all those who testify to know Christ, to do whatever your hand finds to do, to do it now and to do it with all your might. And he asks, how would you respond then if Christ stood among us this morning and said, I have done all this for you, what have you done for me? And Spurgeon says, that's the question I want to ask you on Christ's behalf. Some of you here, he says, perhaps some of us listening, I hope, have known this love of Christ for 50 years or 30 or 20 or 10 or 3 or 1. Now, he has done all this for you. He has bled away his precious life, has died in agonies most exquisite upon the cross. But what have you done for him? He says, look over the record of your life. Open your diary. What record do you have of service for him who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? And some of you have got such a record, but you would say, I am still an unprofitable servant. And he says, our accounts are going to fall short. But perhaps more terrible is that some have done positively nothing. And you can hear his grief and his frustration you have joined the church, you have been baptised, and that's about all. You have sometimes doled out a little from your abundance to the cause of Christ, but oh, how little when you think he gave his all for you. Others there are of you who out of your little have given much, out of your weakness have been strong, in your poverty you've never been poor towards Christ's cause. You shall not lack your reward at last, but even you will come with the rest of us and say, Lord, help us to love the poor, and by your amazing love to us, constrain us to devote ourselves wholly and unreservedly to you. So the first question, the first gospel reason or motive, consider what he has done for you and ask what you have done for him. 
Another reason he wants to give us why you should serve Christ with all your might now, that men who die unconverted face a doom that is fearful beyond all expression. He's basically asking, do you really believe in hell? Do you really believe in the wrath which is to come? Do you really believe in the judgments of God that are going to fall upon those who do not repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? So you be earnest. For if you do not believe this Bible, I do not care what you are, earnest or dull. But if you do believe it, act as you believe. If you think men are perishing, if the Lord's right hand is dashing in pieces his enemy, then I beseech you be strengthened by the same right hand to endeavour to bring those enemies to Christ, that they may be reconciled by the blood of the cross. If the grave is pressing towards you, Christian, and that makes you work, consider that the grave presses also toward the unconverted, and they have no hope of glory outside of Jesus Christ. And now last of all, a final appeal. Possibly, he says, in my explanation, I have led you to form in your heart some great scheme of what you would do. Well, let me knock that all to pieces because that is not my text. He's going back to some of his first points. It's not a great scheme he's after. It's whatever your hand finds to do. That's what I want you to do. And he has three directions to that exhortation. First of all, to parents. That's your mission field. Your your concern is at your feet. It's right there. It's not even on your doorstep. It's within your doors. You have sons and you have daughters to whom you can speak and with whom you can plead that Christ would be glorified in them as they put their faith in him as the Redeemer. Start there, parent, with those who are right at your hand. Sunday school teachers, the same exhortation. I pray God that when you die it may not be said in your schools, Well, we don't miss so-and-so at all. She was not a teacher we could desire. She filled up a gap and that's all we can say. No, be such a teacher in the Sunday school that your children and your colleagues would weep over your departure, that they would know that you wept over them, that you laboured for them, that you prepared for them, that you taught them with your heart in it, that your hand took up what your hand found to do. And, says Spurgeon, I need to turn the guns upon myself. I charge myself most solemnly in this conclusion to be more earnest than ever in preaching the word to you, to preach it in season and out of season, to preach it with all my might, for I shall soon be gone. Life lasts not long, and when we have all departed, may not others have to think of us that we went before our work was fully accomplished. And he closes with a story from the ministry of George Whitfield, And it's interesting here. Um, you will know perhaps that uh, Spurgeon was uh, dedicated against slavery. He was uh, very much a liberty man and uh, actually suffered for it in his day. What's interesting is that his illustration has to do with George Whitfield, who's become the the object of a fair amount of scorn and criticism for Whitfield's own attitude toward slavery. A man of his time, he he owned slaves and uh, didn't seem to have stood against the institution in any distinct way. Now, we're not for one moment going to excuse Whitfield in his uh, engagement and indulgence in that wicked cause. But listen to the story. 
Whitfield was sick and ill, laid down by a fireside, and he lay as if dying. And then a poor old negro woman, as Spurgeon describes her, who had watched over him when others had given him up, spoke to him and said, Master George Whitfield, are you still alive? Whitfield replied that he'd rather hoped he would have been in heaven. And the old woman said this, Master George, she said, you went to the very gates of heaven, and Christ said, Go back, Master George, there are many poor negroes down on the earth that I mean to have saved. Go back and tell them I love them, and mind you do not come back any more till you bring them all with you. So Whitfield recovered strength, says Spurgeon, and even found, as the old woman said, a desire not to go home till he could take those poor negroes with him. Now, you can make of that story what you will. You can criticise Whitfield for uh, his opinions and actions. You can say that Spurgeon, for all his reputation as a, a man who preached freedom for bodies as well as souls, would doesn't understand the situation. But at least take this, that Whitfield was a man who knew that he had to live until he had finished his work. And however much like the Apostle Paul, his appetite might have been to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Whatever the work was that God had given him to do, he was ready to live on until he brought souls home with him to glory. And so, says Spurgeon, may it be said of us, servant of Christ, well done. Rest from your loved employ. The battles fought, the victories won. Enter your rest with joy. I don't really care in one sense which faithful believer you take your model from. We've mentioned an Andrew Fuller. We've mentioned and been considering a Charles Spurgeon. Here's a story about George Whitfield. Perhaps you have someone else, perhaps a name that no one would ever know, a man or a woman of God who, whatever their hand found to do, did it with their might. We've said that such a spirit, even a, a, a drop of it, might transform even the smallest and feeblest church by world's worldly standards. But a few men and women who take up whatever their hand finds to do with their might and who serve God now with all their God-given strength and ability, who pour themselves out in the service of Christ as parents, as Sunday school teachers, as preachers, as friends, as exhorters and comforters and admonishers, whatever God has put in our way. Let us not step over it or around it or bypass it. Let us not think it is too high for us or too low for us, but let us take it up and do it with our might. And may God, for his mercy's sake, be pleased to grant the increase that in these days we too may have a home mission that, while it may not in itself seem to accomplish very much compared with, for example, the labours of a Spurgeon and a Metropolitan Tabernacle in its day, that we too, when we come to the grave, might be able to say, Lord, what you gave me, I have done, and to lay it out before him, and to go with peace into the grave, and that God may be glorified in our living and in our dying. Amen. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. 
For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.